This is week number five of the Systematic Theology course, and we're going to be thinking about the person of Christ this afternoon. This is the second time I've run through this material today. The first time I forgot to record, so what follows is me uh, coming back and reading over my notes. So if it sounds a little bit reedy, that is the reason, and I hope that it still can be encouraging. You might hear a couple of noises in the background, but I think we should be fine to get the gist of the lesson this morning, and we will make sure that I record the work of Christ lesson next week. So without further ado, this is The Person of Christ, Week 5, Systematic Theology, ABF. What sort of man is this? That's the question that Jesus' closest friends were left to ask when he calmed storms. What kind of man is asleep in a boat one minute and causing wind and rain to cease with his words the very next? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? That's the question that we'll be considering over these next two weeks as we examine the person of Christ. We'll see the Bible's answer to the question is this. Jesus is truly God and truly man in one person and will be so forever. Jesus is truly God and truly man in one person and will be so forever. You probably heard more teaching in the past on the work of Christ and on the person of Christ for reasons that we can understand. We tend to focus on what Jesus does more than who he is. But failing to see who Jesus is ultimately will set us on the wrong path. First, you know, it's likely that we'll, if we misunderstand who Jesus is, we'll misunderstand what it is that he came to do. And the second thing is that salvation isn't ultimately just about what Jesus can do for us. Understanding the person of Christ is practical whenever we find worshiping Christ practical. Our love for Jesus, I hope, will grow as we learn more about him. We can be more faithful to the scripture and can give him all the glory that he's due. So as we start, let's get some basics under our belt. Before we talk, uh, start our study by looking at the deity of Christ, his godness, I want us to understand a couple of basics. We'll get confused if we don't understand some of the categories that Bible scholars and theologians have used to understand Jesus' identity as the God-man. First, we need to understand the subject of the incarnation. Answering the question, who is Jesus, must begin with the eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, has always been co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, yet distinct from them in person. Only the Son became man. It's very important. When we think about the who of the incarnation, the one who is doing this act of taking on a human, uh, a human nature, we want to avoid language that makes it seem like Jesus became a human person. Why? Well, because the person of the Son did not cease to be the person of the eternal Son by becoming a different or new person. Instead, that eternal son added a human nature to his person, becoming the God-man, Jesus Christ. Second, it'll be necessary to keep in mind as we go along what's called the person-nature distinction. The person-nature distinction. Our definition above says that Jesus is truly God and truly man in one person. Well, what's a person and what's a nature? To put it simply, a nature is a what? A nature refers to a substance or a, the substance or essence of what it means to be human or divine. A who, a person is a who. Persons act through natures and natures don't act. So we say that Jesus, the God man, does blank. But we don't say the human nature does this or the divine nature does this. We say that Jesus Christ, the God man, acting through his human nature does blank or acting through his divine nature does blank, so on and so forth. And this is going to be critical when we're discussing, for instance, how Jesus can act as God and man at the same time without being two people. 
This has been called the hypostatic union. All that means is that Jesus has two natures, two what's, so to speak, that he can act in and through, but remains one unified person, still only being one who, one acting agent. I know this is just scratching the surface, and you might have a lot more questions. And if you ever run into any questions, please contact me at Colton dot or Colton M quarter rather at gmail.com Colton C O L T O N M quarter C O R T E R at gmail.com. And we'll run into these, uh, these concepts a couple of times again, as we go through. So let's turn now to the divinity of Christ, his Godness, Jesus's identity as no mere mortal, but as God himself to prove Jesus's divinity from scripture, you might have a couple of go-to texts that you like to use. And we'll certainly look at a few of them, more than likely. But I want us to consider what the Bible as a whole, as one story that progresses and gets clearer and clearer as it reaches fulfillment in Christ. I want to see how the Old Testament hints in people, symbols, and institutions that our Savior must be God himself, and that the New Testament confirms that Jesus is all the Old Testament pointed towards. The gospel is kind of like a seed in the Old Testament, and it grows up into an oak tree in the New Testament. And to do this, as we look at the Old Testament first, I want to look at the figure of the son of David, how Jesus's divine identity is anticipated by this figure in the Old Testament that as the narrative builds and builds, becomes clear, is going to be a divine Messiah come to save his people from their sins. The Old Testament builds in this expectation that a son of David, King David, is coming who will reign on David's throne from his line forever. So God promises this to David in 2 Samuel 7, 13, saying, He will build a house for my name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. A forever kingdom is unmistakably divine. The king himself sings of himself in Psalm 20, or 2, 7, rather, The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So this son of David is the son of God. Not only is he the son of God as he lives as the perfectly obedient son in his humanity, but He's identified as the one who has always existed as God's son, the second person of the Trinity. And that's only confirmed as we read ahead in Psalm 45, 6 through 7, where it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So the king here is referred to as God. And when we read ahead in the New Testament, Hebrews 1, teaches us that this passage is about Jesus himself. So Jesus is David's son, but he's greater than David because he's eternal. Jesus is God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity. If Jonah sums up the Old Testament theology of salvation, uh, in Jonah 2.9, salvation comes from the Lord, the New Testament screams, amen, and Jesus is the Lord. Now, as we said, what was hinted at in the Old Testament comes into full view in the New Testament. So if the OT, the Old Testament, whispers Jesus is God, the New Testament screams it. And here are just a few ways, three ways, that the New Testament demonstrates Jesus' divine identity. So first, Jesus is called God and is claimed to be God himself. So John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Romans 9.5 calls Jesus Christ, who is God overall, blessed forever. And Titus 2.13 calls him our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that might be, you could say, just what people said about Jesus, but maybe Jesus never claimed that for himself. However, when you read in the Gospels, 
that nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus himself said, before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am, saying that he predated Abraham, but not only predated him as being created before him, but he's saying, I am uncreated. He's identifying himself with Yahweh as he uh, revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. Uh, later on in John 1030, Jesus directly claims to be equal, even coextensive in essence with God the Father. And lest we misunderstand, the gospel writer shows that the Pharisees understood the point he was trying to make exactly. So they say that Jesus is committing blasphemy because, quote, you being Jesus, uh, being a man, make yourself God. So it was clear to them that Jesus clearly claimed to be God. Now, second, Jesus is presented as the object of believers' worship in the New Testament, and thus God himself. So you'll remember that Judaism was staunchly monotheistic. So the account of what the Magi, who came to see Jesus at his birth, say about him and do is telling about who they thought this child was. So Matthew 2, 10 through 11. When the Magi saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Now, Remember in Isaiah 48, 11, God says this, my glory, I will not give to another. And yet from his birth in Matthew 2, like we saw to the heavenly throne room in Revelation, Jesus receives worship and glory and honor. And it isn't blasphemous and it is idolatrous. It's appropriate. It's demanded even because Jesus is God. And third and finally, the New Testament shows that Jesus is God by him being described as being God and performing the very works that God does. The only works that the works only God is said to be able to do, like creating the universe, sustaining the universe, and ultimately, most importantly, forgiving sins. So Jesus is clearly claims to do those things and is claimed as having done those things. We know that he has. And it's another way that the New Testament uh, even just subconsciously presents Jesus as God. As we go through, and we could go through lots of other reasons, the scriptures are clear. Jesus Christ is God. Now, with all this in mind, let's think about a couple of theological implications of Christ's full divinity. Most probably, we'll think of three. First, the gospel is not good news if Jesus is not God. So I like to explain the gospel using the headlines, God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ's response, who God is, what man has done in rebellion against him, who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do for sinners like you and me, and the response of repentance and faith that we must have if we are to be partakers in that salvation. And Jesus's divinity is absolutely crucial to understand and articulate when sharing the Christ part of that, under that presentation of the gospel, God, man, Christ response. Because if Jesus was merely a man, even a really good man, we could write him off. And besides, who's to say he would be any better than the rest of us? But ultimately, Jesus isn't like us. He doesn't start off like us, dead in sin. Jesus comes from the outside. He alone can provide the solution for our plight before God. The good news is that only God can save us. God the Son took on a human nature, becoming like us in every way, except without sin. He never sinned in order to live the perfect life that God requires of each one of us. He died as a substitute in our place and rose from the dead so that everyone who repents, turns away from their sin, and trusting his work alone for salvation will have eternity in fellowship with God. So that's the first implication of Christ's divinity. The gospel is not good news without it. Second implication I want us to think about 
is that Jesus lived a fully divine life during his earthly ministry. So it is true that Jesus kept much of his divine nature hidden during his life on earth. The transfiguration, of course, is a big exception to that. But it's vital to understand that Jesus wasn't limited to what we could have seen him do. In other words, Jesus lived a full divine life, even as a human being, outside of his human nature. This has been called the extra, which is Latin for outside. Now, what does this matter? It helps us understand how Jesus can know everything as God and yet not know, for example, when he's returning as a man, but still be one person. Jesus can continue to uphold the universe by the word of his power, even as he's dying on the cross. The human nature dies. The divine nature does not. And we'll think about this more as we go along. Uh, but it is a crucial to understand that Jesus doesn't lay aside any of his divinity. He doesn't shirk his responsibilities as God and leave it to the Spirit and the Father to pick up the slack. And we'll see this even more clearly in a third implication, namely that Jesus did not empty himself of his divine attributes during the incarnation. And of course, this point builds off the last one. Since Jesus remains fully God when he takes on flesh, it's impossible to say that Jesus somehow let go of some of his divine attributes while on earth, emptied himself of them. Because God doesn't have some attributes that he can forego and others that are more essential, that are kind of a key to making him God. Instead, the Bible and the church have always taught that God is his attributes. So he doesn't turn them on and off. He is all of them always at their highest degree. And so for Jesus to set aside any of the attributes that make God God, he would cease to be divine. So how do we understand a text like Philippians 2.7? Well, we understand Philippians 2.7, that text that says that Jesus emptied himself by reading the rest of the verse. So it does say he emptied himself which is why people use that language. But then he goes on and explains just how it is that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. You see, Jesus didn't stop being what he always had been in the incarnation. He became what he never had been before. He took on a human nature to become like us. He became a man. So his emptying himself actually wasn't a subtraction of his deity, but the addition of a humanity, because Jesus did not empty himself of any of his divine attributes during the incarnation, even when they were hidden. Now, let's turn to think about the humanity of Christ, the human nature. So we have God the Son stepping into human history, taking on flesh, and for us, as we'll see. And the first question that I want us to think about is why was it necessary in the first place that Jesus have a human nature? Why is Jesus's humanity necessary? Well, Jesus is going to have to be, it must be, truly man if he is going to be our Savior. Because we are. We need someone to be an obedient human in our place because we're disobedient. And God requires that of people made in his image. And we will find that this need for a true human Savior is not only found in a couple of texts here and there, but again, as we think about how the Bible unfolds, as we trace the covenants of the Bible, the whole storyline helps us to put the pieces together to see that the Bible expected and demands even that the Messiah to come, the one who is going to bring salvation for God's people, has to be both God and man. Both are absolutely essential. And we thought last week about the image of God. You know, we said that being made in God's image means we're responsible to love and obey God. We're created in that special covenant relationship with him as our creator. 
we're supposed to represent him or we're to rule under his authority. But of course, Adam failed and, he can, and didn't do what God commanded him as God's image bearer. And of course, we've done this anyway in him. And the idea of image is actually in scripture tied closely to the idea of sonship. So image and son are kind of used interchangeably at times. And we can think of examples in our own nomenclature, uh, in the, our own phrases and sayings that we use to, to make this link because we talk about kids being in the image of their father. So there's some kind of family resemblance, so to speak. So Adam's failure to image God was also a failure of sonship. As sons are to represent or be in the likeness of their fathers, Adam failed and turned inward and tried to image himself, tried to, uh, to live for his own glory. But even though God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden for their failure as son, uh, we see God promising a son who will come, a son of the, uh, the seed of the woman who will crush the seed of the serpent's head and win salvation for God's people. So we're set from an early part of Scripture to look for this obedient son, one who will come and succeed where Adam failed. And as we fast forward a little bit through the biblical narrative, past Noah, past Abraham, we find ourselves in the book of Exodus. And God is about to rescue the children of Abraham from Egypt. And we see he calls Israel, this group that he's going to establish as his people, his son in Exodus 4.22, his firstborn son. So Israel is given this same identity as God's son as a collective uh, son. He, he lumps them all together as, as, as if they were one person. And they're given the same task that Adam was given, represent God in the world by trusting and obeying him. But again, obedience is key. God says that he'll bless Israel, his son, if they obey. But curses are promised if they disobey him. And we know, as we read on, Israel does disobey. Israel fails. They shirk their responsibility that God has placed on them as, their, as son. And the search for an obedient son to bring redemption to God's people continues. Israel's not it. Which brings us to David and the covenant that God makes with him in 2 Samuel 7. The Davidic king is going to become the representative for God's people. So as originally Adam, a singular, was son, and we saw that idea of son and image expand out to the group of Israel, we see it narrow back such that David in his obedience to God, or his disobedience, is going to stand in for the obedience of all the people, such that this Davidic king will have the fate of all of God's people on his shoulders. His obedience means life, his disobedience, death. And the Old Testament ends this way, because all of David's sons turn from the Lord, and the promise remains of this Davidic king who come and rule forever as the obedient son, the one who brings the new covenant, which promises the full forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit. And we don't see that fulfilled until Jesus. Jesus is that king, that obedient son. And that's the point of Matthew's genealogy, that Jesus is in the line of David. He is in that royal line who is the obedient son, the perfect image of God, who obeys the Father perfectly, who dies in the place of sinners and rises from the dead, and is declared to be the Messiah by that resurrection like we see in Romans 1.4. So that makes it clear that Jesus's humanity was necessary because the Old Testament expected it and God's plan necessitated it. Now, as we turn to Hebrews 2, I want to show you exactly why Jesus's humanity is as important as his deity for his role as our mediator. We read in verse 17 of Hebrews 2 that Jesus had to be made like his brothers. He had to be made like his brothers. Well, why? 
because we are flesh and blood, Christ had to have true flesh and true blood to qualify to represent us. So he had to become like us in order to save us. God took, uh, God the Son took on a human nature like ours in order to redeem us. If he wasn't like us in that way, then he couldn't stand as a mediator, as a go-between between God the Father, God, and us. So we see that Jesus' humanity is important, is vital, if he is going to be our great high priest. So that's, what it, that's why, rather, it's necessary for Jesus to be fully human. Now, I want to drill into what it means when we say that Jesus is fully human. What do we mean when we say he has a human nature? And you'll notice that I keep using very intentionally present tense language. So Jesus is human instead of was. Well, why? Why am I doing that? Well, it's because Jesus still is human. And that's part of what we celebrate on Easter, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, not just spiritually, but bodily. And when he ascends into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, he doesn't peel off that human nature, but he remains human for all eternity. Christ will always be the God-man, our faithful, sympathetic high priest who is ever interceding for us before the Father. Now remember, when we say that Jesus is truly human, we're referring again to that act of God the Son taking on a human nature. Again, Jesus does not become a human person. He doesn't become another who. He's not two people. He always has been the second person of the Trinity, and now the second person of the Trinity, the Son, takes on human flesh, takes on a human nature, and is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so that means that Jesus takes on everything that would make him, everything necessary to make him genuinely human and able to represent us. We see that Jesus had a human body, a human mind, a human soul, and a human will. And we'll take each of those four in turn right now. So Jesus has a human body. Here are just a couple of instances where we see Jesus clearly having a true human body. He was born, just like all other human babies are born. He grew through childhood to adulthood, just like other children grow. Jesus became tired. He became thirsty and hungry. Of course, ultimately, Jesus died. His body, his human body, ceased to have life in it at all. It ceased to function just as ours does when we die. Jesus rose from the grave with a physical body, which we studied today in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus ascended and will return with a human body. And it's important to remember that God doesn't have a body. God is spirit. And so the physical limitations that Jesus faced were absolutely new to him. Jesus had to have a body to be physically human, to suffer and die for our sins, because God as God does not suffer. And that's what's been called divine impassibility. But through his human nature, the son who never knew suffering suffered as a man in our place. Not only does God, or does God the Son, Jesus Christ, have a human body, he has a human mind. The fact that Jesus increased in wisdom, Luke 2.52, says that he went through a learning process just as all other children do. So he would learn how to eat. He would have learned how to talk. He would have learned how to read and write, how to be obedient to his parents even. See Hebrews 5.8. This ordinary learning process was part of the genuine humanity of Christ. Now, Jesus had a perfect knowledge as the perfect man, His knowledge wasn't affected by sin like ours. His mental capacities weren't tainted by sin in the same way that ours were. But his knowledge was still finite and limited like ours. He didn't have infinite knowledge according to his humanity. Of course, he always retained that being in his person, also divine, acting in and through that divine nature. But his human knowledge is exactly like ours, limited. 
Um, and the clearest instance of Jesus displaying this limited, finite human mind is when he discussed his return. So you think of Mark 13, 32, when he says, but of that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. So we can say that at the same time, Jesus is ignorant according to his humanity and that he continued to know all things according to his divinity. And, and both of those things, even though you can't say they're true of the, each other, namely that you can't say that since Jesus didn't know through his humanity when he was going to come back, therefore God doesn't know the future. But you can say that since Jesus operates both through these natures, that both can be attributed to Jesus himself, such that it's entirely appropriate to say Jesus was ignorant and to say Jesus knew all things. So Jesus had a human body, he had a human mind. And third, he had, uh, has, uh, sorry, I went back to my past, uh, past tense. Jesus has all those things and continues to have a human soul and human emotions. So Jesus was not a divine soul in the shell of a human body. Jesus himself has a human soul and experienced human emotions. And we see several indications that when Jesus had a human soul, uh, he says things like, now my soul is troubled, John 12, 27. Jesus also experienced a full range of human emotions. He's swept with, he wept with sorrow at the death of Lazarus and rejoiced in the spirit in Luke 10, 21. Jesus' experience of emotion sometimes doesn't seem probably as a big deal to us as some of the other things we've discussed because we generally assume that God has emotions too. But God doesn't have emotions, at least in the same way that we do. Because God is never overcome by anger or joy. He knows all things. He brings things to pass. He doesn't change. He is all of those things and always to the highest degree. He's always full of joy and holiness and justice. And so Jesus as the God-man, having never experienced the trials and tribulations, the sorrows of this world, subjected himself to them in order to be qualified to be our Redeemer. Because if God as God could have suffered, then what was the point of God, the Son, the second person in the Trinity, taking on flesh to suffer in our place? So we have God coming from outside our experience to pull us up out of our experience of suffering and of sin. And then finally, Jesus has a human will. So Jesus not only has a human body, a human mind, a human soul, but also a human will. Now, I'm going to do a little bit of a pop quiz. How many wills does Christ have? How many wills does Christ have? Now, second question, how many wills are there in the Trinity, in God himself, in his essence, in his being? So Christ has two wills, a divine will and a human will. God, the Trinity, only has one will, a will shared equally between Father, Son, and Spirit. And the way that we can keep this straight is to remember that a will is connected to a nature, not a person. So nature, uh, have the willing belongs in the nature, not in the person. So since Jesus has two natures, that means he has two wills. And since God has one nature that's shared equally between the three persons of the Trinity, there's only that one will, that one center of, of consciousness wherein uh, wherein we, we do things, we, we, we will, we will, we want, we desire, so on and so forth. So Jesus had to have a human will. He had to have two wills. It's absolutely necessary because the will is at the very center of what it means to be human. Our love, our obedience, our everything starts with the will. 
our will defines everything about us. And just as Jesus, and Jesus had to have that human will in order to perfectly submit to the Father on our behalf. That's the only way that Jesus could have the righteousness we need in order to be saved, because he had to have a perfectly submitted will to God's. And we see that Jesus' human will is on full display in the Garden of Gethsemane. So he says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But then what does he say? Yet not my will, but your will be done, meaning the Father's will. So how do we know that this is Jesus' human will submitting to the divine will? Because Jesus shares that same divine will with the Father and the Spirit. So it would be impossible for Jesus as God to submit to the Father because they, should, they share the same divine nature and so the exact same will. And two, peop, two persons with the same will can't submit to one another. They're in perfect harmony. They're in lockstep. Jesus' human will submits to God's divine will. Now Jesus submitted to the Father through his human nature to fulfill the law and provide the obedience we owe to God, as we said. When we turn back to the book of Hebrews, this time in Hebrews 5, 7 through 9, we read, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus didn't become perfect or learn obedience because he needed to become more holy. He couldn't be more holy than he already was. He became perfect and learned obedience by positively fulfilling God's just requirements, earning positively in obedience like we thought about earlier. So in other words, Jesus didn't obey for himself. Jesus obeyed for us. Now, why was it necessary for all these things to be true about Christ's humanity, that he had to have a human body, he had to have a human will, so on and so forth? Well, Gregory of Nazianzus, an early church father, wrote this in the fourth century. For that which he, being Christ, has not assumed or taken on, he has not healed. For that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. Jesus had to have whatever it is that we have and everything that we need to be saved. So we've all sinned, body, mind, soul, and will, right? And Jesus takes on a full human nature and has all of that, all of what it means to be human in order to redeem every part of us and to make us completely new. So Jesus' full humanity guarantees our full salvation. That's what it means for Jesus to be human. Now, as we think about Jesus' human origin, well, we need to think about the virgin birth. So usually, we reserve this topic for Christmas time. The biblical account of Jesus' conception and birth is, is, foundation for, is foundational for how we, had, uh, we identify him as the God-man. And most famously, we look to the book of Matthew and Luke to give accounts of the virgin birth, even though we know that it was foretold in texts like Isaiah 7, for instance. And actually, when we look at it in the Bible's presentation, of the virgin birth, it's not actually the virgin birth that is uh, the real miracle involved, because Jesus's birth would have been basically just like any of ours. We probably had a slightly better circumstances, I'm sure, but the actual process of the, of the live physical birth was the same. So the virgin conception, how Jesus came to be in Mary's womb, is where the Bible focuses in. So in Luke 1.35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. The incarnation occurred by a miraculous work of the Spirit of God to create Jesus' human nature from Mary's womb. So it wasn't the result of Mary and Joseph's union. They hadn't been married yet. They hadn't been together yet in that way. It was by the Spirit creating from Mary's womb the human nature of Jesus Christ. Now let's turn and think now 
about Jesus's sinlessness. We've all heard the phrase to err as human, but it's only true that to err is human for fallen humans. But Jesus was not a fallen human. Jesus never erred. He never sinned. It's plainly declared that Jesus is sinless in, in verses like Hebrews 4, 16 through, or 14 through 16, where it says, again, Jesus was like us in every respect, yet without sin. And then Paul, uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, we read, he, knew no sin, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The rest of the Bible assumes that Jesus was sinless. Even his opponents assumed he was sinless. They had nothing to pit against him. He had to be if he was going to complete the work that, that he came to accomplish. The theological question that's come up time and time again in this discussion has been, could Jesus have sinned? So you might grant that Jesus has not sinned, but could he have sinned? Was it possible? And actually, there's a lot riding on our answer to this question. If Jesus could have sinned, it would mean it was possible that he could not or would not have fulfilled the mission he was sent for. And we have to keep in mind also that God the Son is the person acting through that human nature, and it would be impossible for a divine person to sin. Jesus's inability to sin, however, doesn't mean that the temptations he faced weren't real. In fact, his inability to sin would make the temptation all the worse. He would have had unique temptations like turning the stone, uh, stones into bread, for instance, and to, to give up on his mission and to exercise his divine prerogatives and override his human nature and thus not be able to present a righteousness for God's people that, that we could take because it would be some kind of concoction of a divine human uh, righteousness which wouldn't save us. Um, and Satan actually probably would have to have thrown at him even worse temptations than he would have to throw at for us because for fallen people like you and me, we're easy targets. We give in far easier. So Satan would have had to pull out the whole arsenal against Jesus and didn't have the friend on the inside, so to speak, that Satan has with us, our, our desire to sin. Jesus didn't have that. He was absolutely perfect. Unless that we think Jesus's temptations weren't real because, uh, because he was not able to sin, we can think of ourselves and we can think of the sin of apostasy or the sin of falling away from God. Theologically, we believe and our statement of faith teaches that we cannot lose our salvation. Once we are God's children, he never lets us go. We might fall away at times and be backslidden, though that's not the normal state of God's children, but God's children always make it. They always continue to repent, continue to believe. And even though we know that it's impossible for any children of God to fall away, to be pulled out of the Father's hand, we also know that the temptation to walk away from Jesus is real. We all know that in varying degrees. So we know from our own experience that just because a sin is impossible to commit doesn't mean that temptation isn't real. Now, how do we put all of this together? Everything that I've said. And I should say at this point that over the summer, Chris Sutterfield and myself taught a, a little mini class on the person and work of Christ, where Chris started with a systematic theology overview. What does it mean to do systematic theology? I taught twice on the person of Christ. So actually this talk was two talks and Chris then taught two on the work of Christ. So if you want to learn more, I would go back and listen to those where the human nature and the divine nature are sort of expounded on. Uh, you can double click on any of these topics that are of more interest to you 
And uh, again, you can always reach out to me with any questions. And you can also see the recommended readings that we put on the handout that should be on the website as well. So let's put all of this together. Let's, let's go over these four statements at the end that reflect some of the, the early creeds and confessions, even resonant with our own church uh, statement of faith, that summarize the Bible's teaching on the identity of Jesus, who Jesus is. So first, Jesus is one person with two natures. One person with two natures. He's both perfect in Godhead, the same substance as the Father, the same substance as the Spirit, as God, as much God as the Father, as much God as the Spirit, and yet also perfect in manhood, sharing the same substance with us. Second, Jesus's two natures are united together, but remain distinct. Jesus's two natures don't blend together in any way or share things between themselves so that the human nature and the divine nature sort of start to bleed into one another and infuse one another with their properties. So that's why it can be true. That's why what may be true of one nature isn't necessarily true of another, even though both are true of Jesus as a person. We can use that example again of Jesus sleeping. So it's true that Jesus, the person, slept, but we can't say that the divine nature slept, that God as God sleeps. We can say God the Son through his human nature slept because it's true Jesus is the one acting through that nature to sleep but Jesus's divine nature obviously remains awake it's not even possible for God to sleep or slumber as we know from the book of Psalms third Jesus's two natures aren't ripped apart creating two different people they're united Jesus is the one God man so Jesus can have those two natures and yet have one identity one person right one person who is acting, not two people split apart. And then finally, Jesus, the eternal son, became the son of God in the flesh, God the son incarnate, for us and for our salvation. This is who Jesus is. And next week, we're going to begin thinking about what it is that Jesus came to do. So we're going to think about next week, as a preview, Jesus as our prophet, the one who perfectly reveals God, shows us what God's like. If we want to look and know who God is, we look to the Son. And then we'll also think of Jesus as our priest. So his work of atonement, of, of making us right before God, of offering sacrifice and taking away God's wrath. But then also his priestly work of intercession as he ever lives to make intercession, pleading for us before God the Father. And then we'll think about Jesus as our King, as the sovereign of all things, the, the universal King of all people. And it's to that we'll turn next week. And I thank you for listening, and we will see you then. Thank you.